We'll now be reading from God's Word. Uh, we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12 through 15. That can be found on page 968 on the Bibles around. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, y'all. My name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor. You guys aren't, I mean, come on. Good morning, y'all. There we go. All right. I know it's a dreary day outside, but let's get a little energy going. Uh, We are starting, well, we've started a new sermon series, continuing it this morning, uh, called Flourish, um, Growing in in Fruitfulness. It is connected to the launch of our new capital campaign. Uh, It is our second as a young church, and in conjunction with that, we have begun a five-week study in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which are these central chapters in the New Testament dealing with giving um, and talking about generosity and, and how important it is. Um, as you enter in, I want to I highlight two things. When you came in, uh, you either got it last week or hopefully you got it this week. We've given you two books. The first is A 21-Day Journey Toward a Generous Life. It is a book that I co-wrote with Gary Rohrmeyer, who is um, my church planning coach, but also the, the, uh, uh, the president of, of Convergement America. He's our denominational tie. And, and um, we put this together specifically uh, to assist churches as they are uh, seeking to grow in generosity. And so it's hot off the presses. I mean, literally, they had to overnight it to me last week uh, in order for us to have it in time for the launch of our, our campaign. Um, but I would love for you to take this and work your way through it, okay? Like, literally, work your way through it. And if you miss a day, just pick it back up, right? And if you're like, I just got it this week, it's okay. It's 21 days. That's three weeks. It's a five-week series. You're good, okay? Um, but go ahead and, and work your way through that. I hope it's a blessing to you. The second is our capital campaign uh, workbook. This is a, a very specific book that helps you know what we're raising, why we're raising it, how how we plan to get there and how we plan to use it is a practical tool to hopefully help you enter in. Uh, if you don't have one of those, make sure you grab them on the way out. We do want everyone uh, to get those so that you can take a look at it. Over the course of this series, we are asking what I believe are a series of provocative questions. Now, what's funny about these is that these questions don't seem very prov- provocative on their surface. Last week, we asked the question, what is wealth? And most people are like, Steve, that's not provocative. Uh, duh. Wealth is money, right? That's why we play the lotto, right? That's, we're just hoping to strike it rich. Um, and we talked last week about how, honestly, uh, wealth isn't money, right? Uh, true wealth is actually love, right? It is love that is true wealth. Um, those who have money and no love, right? They're some of the poorest people around, and the poverty of their affluence cut off from what gives life genuine richness, which is love. Right? And there's no powerful, more powerful love than grace. Grace is an unexpected, unearned, always surprising love. The kind of love that just surprises you over and over and over again. And every time it surprises you, it awakens within you responding emotions of joy and security and contentment and significance, right? 
It awakens within you um, all of the connections with love. And, and so true wealth, man, it's not having money. True wealth comes from love. Loving others and being loved by others and what comes from that love. The joy, the gratitude, the contentment that, that flow from that. So this week we're asking another provocative question that is, I think, deceptively simple. And that is this, what is generosity? What is generosity? And I say it's a deceptive question because generosity is, oddly enough, uh, one of America's like, core values. You can go there. We, we like to think of ourselves as a generous people. Uh, we, we like to think of ourselves as, as, and we value generosity. Barna is a research group, uh, and they were paid by a company called Thrivent Financial to do research specifically among Christians about generosity. And they discovered that seven out of ten people would say that generosity is very or extremely important to them. Right? So when you're looking at a spectrum of not important at all to very or extremely important, seven out of ten Christians would say that generosity is very or extremely important to them. In fact, the next question was, um, uh, how many of you think you are generous, right? And, and six out of ten people would say that they were somewhat to very generous. Six out of ten people place themselves on this side of the scale. Not only do they value generosity, but they are, in fact, generous in their activities. So I think it's really important for us to ask a very simple question. What is generosity? If we value it and we think that that we're acting according to that value, it's important for us to look in and ask the question, what is generosity? And this is kind of where we're going. You go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if if true wealth is is love, that means true generosity isn't measured by the amount of money you give. True generosity is measured by the amount of love that leads to the giving. All right, so let's talk about our passage. Our passage today, Paul is in fundraising mode. He is writing to the Corinthians in order to take up a collection for poor Jewish believers over in Jerusalem, right? He, he is, he is um, uh, asking wealthy Corinthians. They are in a, a thriving economic capital in the ancient world, uh, Greek-speaking. Um, it, is, it, is, it is a metropolis. It is where people come to do trade. It is, it is a thriving... It's like New York, man. It's like New York in the ancient world. And they're raising money to send it to, to poor Jewish believers over in Jerusalem, right? You're talking about a huge ethnic divide. You're talking about a huge socioeconomic divide. You're talking about a huge space divide, right? People in Corinth don't care about people in Jerusalem, right? It just, they, they're not going to see them. They don't go there. This is a hard sell, right? Paul has a really challenging task in front of him to encourage the Corinthians to give generously uh, to people from such a different group. And here's the thing, his appeal can't be based on general humanitarian goodwill. Like today, we can make that appeal, right? We can put on a, a commercial showing poor children and say, don't you want to give money? And we're all like, yes, I feel this general need to be generous in a general human way. And, and that ties into our cultural values. They didn't have those cultural values. They valued their tribe, their people, their city, their place. Most of those people never left their community. They they weren't concerned about people all around the world. They were concerned about their lives, right? To, to call them to give, man, he couldn't appeal to, to that value structure. So in these two chapters, Paul lays out a careful case for generosity based on the value of generosity itself. In other words, what he's saying is you should be generous 
Because generosity itself is valuable. You will benefit when you give. Corinthians are wrestling with that. Asking simple, provocative questions like, when do I give and how much do I give and how do I know what is really generous? You're telling us we should do this. What does it look like? So in our verses this morning, Paul digs into that. Verse 12, he says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. All right, let's not skip over that first phrase. If the readiness is there. The first manifestation of genuine generosity is that genuine generosity begins with a readiness to be generous. You're like, Steve, this is a little too obvious. I don't think it is. Here's the thing. You can't consider whether or not you're being generous until you've brought your heart to a place where it's ready to be generous. Before you take the first step of generosity, you need to take a step before the step. You need to take a step of examining your heart before you start examining your gift. Why? Because we are greedy. I'm not insulting you. I'm just giving you reality. Right? We are in our sin by being fallen humans. We're just greedy. Right? We want to keep what we have and get more. Doesn't that pretty much define most of our lives? I want to keep what I have and I want to get more. Right? And so I think subtly, that, that if I keep what I have and get more, if I keep the money I have and get a little more money, if I keep the, the recognition I have and get a little bit more, if I keep the security I have and get a little bit more, then I will eventually get to that place where I'll have joy and security and significance and genuine rest and pleasure, right? But, but we all know, this is what we talked about last week, that's a treadmill, man. You're just running, running, running. You keep what you have and get more, but you're not getting any closer to the genuine goal, right? Because true wealth isn't money, true wealth is love. But greed is still one of the central currents of our heart. It is one of the central lies we are tempted to believe that in order for me to get what I really want, I need to keep what I have and I need to get more, which means we need to go to war with that central impulse of our heart. If we're going to be genuinely generous, we need to go to war with the greed in our heart. Now, we saw this last week when Paul talked about the Macedonians' gift. The Macedonians were the, the poor Christians that were in Berea and Thessalonica and, and uh, Philippi. And, and their churches were planted in the midst of persecution. And they paid a price when they became believers in Jesus. They lost economic opportunity, social acceptance, and as a result, they were impoverished. And Paul says, out of their poverty grew a richness of generosity, a wealth of generosity. How did that happen? He says, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the Lord's will, they gave themselves to us. Notice the order. They took a step before the step. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the Lord's will, they gave themselves to the offering that Paul was collecting, right? If the readiness is there, if the readiness is present, Don't assume it is. Because if you skip this step, you're not going to get to genuine generosity. And you're not going to get to the benefits of genuine generosity. You have to be ready to take the first step. How do you know when you're ready? How do you know when you're ready? Well, I'm going to give you two things that I want you to look for. Are you moving toward generosity from a place of fear, of resentment, of keeping? 
Or are you moving toward generosity from a place of gratitude and contentment? If you're ready to move forward from a place of gratitude and contentment, you have readiness. You're ready to move toward, toward generosity. Gratitude. Remember, gratitude is, is a profound combination of humility and joy. It's way more than just saying thank you. You can say thank you without ever experiencing gratitude, right? But you can't experience gratitude without saying thank you, right? Gratitude is, is when you're humbled by the gift and you take joy in the giver, and, the, and there is nothing that, it, that will produce gratitude in our hearts more than the gospel. The good news that God loved us so much that he sent his son, that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, took on flesh, lived the life we should have lived, and then died the death we deserved to die. He was our substitute in judgment so that, so that we could receive the benefit of his resurrection. Right? When I see that he died as my hero, my substitute, under the weight of my sins, so that I could be covered with the riches of his righteousness, first of all, that humbles my heart. I'm like, holy cow, what an incredible gift. And it awakens a joy in the giver. I'm like, you loved me that much. I'm humbled by the gift. I take joy in the giver. And when you have that, man, you experience gratitude. And gratitude, you know it because it's transformative. Gratitude changes you. It is a deep, uh, profound emotional experience in, in which you are responding to an initiating love. And in responding, you're learning to love, right? Gratitude. Contentment. Contentment is, is this wonderful place where longing intersects with faith, Right? We often think of contentment as uh, something I'll get when I get what I want, right? If I can just get what I want, then I'll finally get the contentment I desire. If I can just get enough money, I'll finally feel content and secure. If I just have enough experiences, I'll finally feel content and rested. If I can just get enough vacation, if I can just get enough, right? That's, again, the treadmill that never gets us to where we want to go. It is a false view of wealth and a false view of how you find the flourishing of life. Contentment isn't about satisfying the desires. What? It's true. And it's not a Buddhistic approach, right? The Buddhists say that that contentment comes from denying your desires and killing your desires, that somehow you're supposed to become a desireless being, right? Not only is that completely going against your wiring, um, it it doesn't work, right? You were designed to be a desiring being because you were designed in the image of an infinite God, who pours himself out infinitely in goodness and in power and in significance and in joy. We were designed to feast on the infinite flow of the character of God. Your longings aren't going to go away. In fact, your longings are really, really good things. The key to contentment is not eliminating your longings or satisfying your longings. It's holding your longings in faith. It's anchoring your longings to the promises of the gospel. See, see, when I anchor my longings to an experience or to a number in my bank account or, or to a certain level of acceptance from society, if I could just drive this car, if I could just have this title, if I could just have this corner office, we anchor our longing, our, our contentment to something that we think is going to feed it, and of course it won't. Because no matter how many things you feed that desire, it can never satisfy that desire because that desire is ultimately meant to be anchored in God. Our faith in the gospel tells us, I am secure because I'm loved by God. I am significant because I've been declared God's son, God's daughter by the work of Christ. I can find genuine rest from my anxiety because the God of the universe who knows all things stays awake all night while I sleep right? 
It's anchoring our, our longings in our faith. Contentment doesn't come from a lack of longings. It comes from pointing our longings to the right place, right? Having them anchored in the character and in the power and in the blessings of God. Listen, when your heart is there, when you have gratitude and when you have contentment, you're ready to actually consider generosity, right? Because greed cannot survive in a heart that is rich in gratitude and contentment, right? The work of the gospel is at work killing that inward pull of greed and is freeing you into the outward flow of love, all right? So first of all, uh, the readiness needs to be present, um, there was a, that study that I mentioned by Barna. One of the questions they asked, and I put this quote in your bulletin because I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, one of the questions they asked, and they discovered this thing. They were paid to discover this, y'all. They were paid to discover that Christians with giving goals give more than Christians with keeping goals. They were paid to discover that. Right? Nice job, right? Um, I wish I had a job where all I had to do was state well, the obvious. Uh, I do. Um, <laughs> I get paid to tell you what you already know, just in ways you didn't know you knew it. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're, um, uh, they found this out. And here's what, here's what shocked me about this, is that people have giving goals. Like, I get keeping goals. I got a lot of keeping goals. Y'all got any giving goals? Listen, to help prepare your heart for readiness... There are a couple things you can do. Dig into the gospel. Let it soften your heart and renew your joy in Christ. Um, engage the devotional guide. That's why I wrote it. That's why we put work into this, to help you get ready for generosity. Like, engage it. Take the 21 days. Work your way through it. Even if some of the stuff is like, you know, this is dumb. It's okay. Right? Just because you're going to spend time in the Word of God and in, in prayer. Man, you can't go wrong there. Right? And the third thing, Start setting some giving goals. Give your way toward generosity. Like actually just start setting some easy goals. If you haven't given, start giving. If you're giving, give a little more. Just start giving. Start setting giving goals, right? And then grow into those goals. What you do with your money not only shows you your heart, what you do with your money shapes your heart. So start taking steps of faith and setting giving goals to go to war with the greed in your heart. Because when you set those goals, it's going to hurt. But the hurt is not bad. The hurt is your greed dying. Right? So, if the readiness is there, that's the very first step. The next step um, is found in, in verse, at the end of verse 12. In verse 12, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Genuine generosity is measured by the sacrifice of love, not the size of the gift. If the readiness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what they don't have. There are two errors that we can fall into with generosity. The first is to think, I don't have enough so I can check out. I don't have enough to be generous. I got too much month left at the end of the paycheck, right? I, I, don't, I don't have enough, so therefore I can't be generous. The second error we can fall into is I already give, therefore I am generous, I already give. Therefore, I am generous, right? Both of those are wrong because gener gener genuine generosity isn't measured by the size of the gift. It's measured by the love that leads to sacrifice. 
Jesus made this point in Mark chapter 12. He tells a, uh, Mark tells us a story, kind of a remarkable story about Jesus. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. I'm going to read it to you. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to this offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has. All that she has to live on. There's a lot that we could dig into, but in what way is her gift larger than all the other gifts? She put in two small copper coins that are equivalent to a penny, right? We're talking about a ridiculously small sum of money. How was her gift larger? Because it represented, it was a manifestation of a greater love. She came with genuine gratitude. She came with genuine contentment. And she came with genuine faith. And she gave it, right? And there were people there, very rich people, who were giving a lot. But they were giving out of their abundance. And the reality is they could give a lot and still keep a lot. They could give a lot and it didn't represent any significant sacrifice on their part. It didn't require a step of faith. It didn't require them growing in, in increased dependence on God. They could give a lot and, and because they were rich, they could, they could keep even more. Hers, on the other hand, was a genuine expression of a heart freed by love. Jesus wasn't impressed by the size of the gifts. He was impressed by the humility and the love that led to the gift. So much so, and this is amazing, so much so that Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the very manifestation of humility, called his disciples together and said, will you all look at this? Because this is worth seeing. There's something happening right here that's remarkable. And he honored her because her love honored him. His heart was filled because her heart was worshiping. Genuine generosity. He's like, that's a sign of the kingdom. That's a sign of somebody who's had a deep experience of grace. Look at that. Now, Jesus didn't need money. (laughs) He was asked one time whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar. He's like, yeah. So he grabs a fish and pulls a coin out of its mouth, right? God doesn't need our money. He wants our hearts. And the problem is our money is the way of our hearts. So, Amy Carmichael has a quote in your bulletin. She says, "You you can always give without loving, but you can never love without giving. You can always give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Why? Because love gives, right? For God so loved that he gave. It's throughout the New Testament. For God so loved that he gave. For a mom so loves her child that she gives. For a man so loves his family that he gives. For a friend so loves her friend that she gives. 
There's no loving without giving. There is no loving without giving. And it is the giving that comes from loving that is transformative to our hearts, right? So, so we need to give because love gives. So how much should we give? <laughs> Generally more than, than is comfortable. Isn't that what happens in relationships? Don't the people you love generally ask you to give more than you thought you'd have to give? Doesn't it push you to a place where you're like, ah, I never thought I'd be doing this, <laughs> but here I go, right? <laughs> love compels you to give, and in that giving, it compels you to give in ways you never thought you could, because it's in love that you find genuine wealth, right? How much should we give? Take a look at verses 13 and 14. As we dig in, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need so that there may be fairness. Next principle, genuine generosity is fair, but it's not equal. Genuine generosity is fair, but it is not equal. Paul makes this point twice in this passage. another what we call a chiastic structure. It's a poetic structure that Paul uses where he makes a point fills it with, with relevant details and then makes the point again, right? He says, it is a matter of fairness. Your abundance meets their needs. Their abundance will meet your needs. It is a matter of fairness. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. You'll see the structure. He says it twice. Leads us to a very important question. How in the world is generosity fair? Generosity is a lot of things, but I don't think of generosity as fair. Generosity is nice, Generosity is kind. Generosity is generous and charitable. But fair? See, when I think of fair, I don't think of generosity. Right? See, Paul is playing a bit with our idea of fairness. Right? When we think of fairness, we think of equal. Um, Fair means I get what I deserve, and you get what you deserve. Fair means everyone's treated equally, right? When I taught middle school, holy cow, middle schoolers are so obsessed with fairness. It is like this thing triggers in their brain and all of a sudden they're like, that's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair. It's like the worst accusation they can throw at you and they give it to you about a thousand times a day, right? They do. And if you have middle schoolers, you know this. And if you were one, you probably don't remember it, but that was you. Uh, fairness, fairness. You know, when, when, when occasionally when I was in, in high school, we'd come home and we'd find a half gallon of ice cream in, in, the, uh, in the freezer. We didn't find it very often because the next thing we would do is Greg and I, one person would cut and the other person would choose. And you'd eat the whole thing because if you left any, the other guy would get it, right? So you'd cut the, the half gallon of ice cream in half, you'd split it. One person cut, the other person chooses. Why? Because for it to be fair, it has to be equal. So when you're cutting it, man, you want to get exactly in the middle. Because if you get off, you're losing, right? You're losing. He's going to get more because I miscut, right? Or you want to be deceptive. Cut it kind of at an angle, you know. My deceptive heart. Um, fair. When we think of fair, we, we think of equal. Um, but listen, there's a different kind of fairness. There's a different kind of fairness. There is a fairness of equality, and that's important in the marketplace. When you do a job, you should be paid for it. 
It, it, it doesn't matter, right? You shouldn't be paid less because you're a woman. If, you, if you're looking for housing, um, you know, contacting Airbnb, it shouldn't matter what your race is, right? Fair should be equal in the marketplace, right? But fair never means equal in relationships because there's a very different kind of fairness. It's the fairness of mutuality. See, mutuality is the concept that we share something in our mutual relationship that grows as we invest in it, right? We have mutual values. We have, we have mutual goals. We, we share a mutual flourishing of life. And fairness in mutuality is very, very different than fairness in equality. If you take the, the economy of equality and try to apply it to your relationships, you will destroy your relationships, right? Pretty soon you'll be like, who, who washed the dishes more? Who, who got up with the kid more? Who sacrifices more for the flourishing of this family? As soon as you turn it into an issue of equality, you turn it into an issue of competition with winners and losers. And as soon as you have winners and losers, you both lost. In relationships, you don't operate according to an economy of equality. You operate according to an economy of mutuality. You give because you love and you're both enriched as you both give. What's fair in mutuality? Everybody gives what they have to give. A parent gives what a parent has to give. A friend gives what they have to give. A child gives what they have to give. A partner gives what they have to give. In mutuality, fairness is everybody giving what they have to give. It's not equal, but it is fair. And it's how relationships work. It's how the economy of love grows. If true wealth is love, True generosity has to work from the economy of love, recognizing that mutuality is what drives it, not economy. So your abundance can meet their need and their abundance can meet your need, even if you never meet them face to face. And here's, here's something that's pretty weird about this passage. The likelihood that the Corinthians were going to meet the poor saints in Jerusalem was ridiculously small. And yet Paul says, your abundance will meet their needs and their abundance will meet your needs. How in the world will the abundance of poor believers in Jerusalem meet the needs of wealthy believers in Corinth? Because there's a spiritual economy of love over which God presides. There's never a wasted act of love. There is never a wasted act of love, even if you never see the person who's the recipient of its benefit. Because you're investing into an economy that never fails. It is always a bull economy. It is always growing. Because God is the the driving force behind it. Not our consumption. The outpouring of His character. And the manifestation of His glory. Paul drives us home in verse 15. In verse 15, he, he gives us this really weird reference, right? He says, As it is written... Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little little had no lack. Hmm. This is a reference to Exodus 16, specifically 16, 18. And the reason it's funny is this. Paul's talking about money and generosity, but that passage in Exodus has nothing to do with money. It's not about money. It's not about generosity. It's actually describing a window of time in the history of Israel where they've been delivered from Egypt, but they haven't yet taken possession of the promised land. So they're wandering between the, 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 the fact they've been delivered from slavery, 
but they haven't yet been delivered into the full blessing that God's won for them. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Maybe parallel to our own age where we live between the advents. Jesus has already shown up and, and, and paid the price of our sin and defeated our greatest enemy, paid our greatest debt and solved our greatest problem. And we're waiting for him to come back and give us the fullness of the kingdom. And we're wandering in between. Yeah, that wasn't lost on Paul, okay? It's a parallel situation. And, and during this wandering, God fed his people. How did he feed them? He gave them manna. So every morning, this flaky stuff would come down from heaven and gather on the grass, and, and God had rules for how they were supposed to deal with it. So what they would do is they would go around, and they would gather all the manna, and they would put it into a common pot. And once they had put it all in a common pot, everybody would take what they needed for the day. And every day, God would send the manna. Every day, they would collect it. Every day, they would take what they needed for that day, except if it was the Friday, the day before Sabbath, in which case they could take twice as much and, and then not have to work on Sabbath. So they could rest. Now, you can imagine there were some people that were like, you know what, I'm not really into this whole dependence every day thing. It's not really my thing. I'd rather just take twice as much as I need today and just kind of take off tomorrow. Right? There's plenty in the pot. Well, here's the thing. If you took more than you needed and you tried to hide it, you pretty much let off a stink bomb in your own tent because it rotted overnight. You would wake up in the morning and it was a rot that uh, was full of stink and full of worms. Okay, you couldn't save it. The only time you could is Friday night for Sabbath, and that was because God said you could, right? You couldn't save it. Um, some clear parallels to today, right? Um, our money is like manna. God provides it. And you're like, Steve, this is one point where I absolutely disagree with you because <laughs> I do not go out in the morning and find money on my lawn. That would be nice. Every morning I get up and just collect, oh, look, there's 100. Hmm. You know, just pick it up and go throw it into a little pot and everybody takes what they need for the day. No, you don't. You don't do that. And, and, and you're like, Steve, I've worked for what I've got. You have. Right? I worked hard. I went to school. I, I, have, I, have, I have labored. I've worked two to three jobs. I got the education. I put in the hours. I put in the sweat equity, man. I did it. Yeah, you did. You did. But that doesn't mean you did anything. Because you don't have anything you weren't given. Like literally, you have nothing that you weren't given. You know that intellect you're using to do these incredible things? Who gave you that intellect? Yeah, but I had to do the hard work to develop it. You're right. God sometimes gives us really, really great gifts. And part of the gift is we have to work hard to find the fullness of the gift. Because in the working hard, we discover more of what he's given us. It doesn't mean it's ours. It just means that the hard work was part of the gift. What do you have that you weren't given? You were given all of your abilities and you were given all your opportunities and the intersection of your abilities and your opportunities was God-ordained. It wasn't an accident that you were born in a place like this. Instead of puffing you up in pride and independence from God, it should be lowering in humility and gratitude to God that he put you in a place where your talents could intersect with opportunities that could lead to the flourishing of life. That you could actually provide for your family. That you could actually enjoy creature comforts. That you could actually increase the standard of your living and be a blessing to others. It should humble you about what you have and it should humble you toward those who don't have as much. Because there are others who work just as hard as you do. But they weren't given the same gifts you were given. Whether we're talking about the natural talents that you were given to develop or the opportunities that came your way in which to develop them. Manna. Your money... 
It's like manna. And just like manna, if you don't obediently submit it to God and use it like God wants you to use it, you know what it does? It stinks. It becomes a stink bomb in your life. All that money you're trying to hoard and you're, you're refusing to submit to God, instead of delivering you into security, it's going to increase your anxiety. You're going to become obsessed with your 401k or the stock market or, or whether you're up or down or how much you need and when you're going to need it. Instead of delivering you into comfort, it's going to deliver you into exhaustion. You're going to be chasing and chasing and chasing rest with new experiences and new vacations and new fancy meals over and over and over again. Just having the, the, the temporary pleasure, but all the while increasing the creeping edge of despair as you realize that no matter how much you consume, it'll never bring you to where you want to go. If you try to hoard your wealth, it will rot. You will set off a stink bomb in your own house, and it'll be filled with worms. So your money is like manna, right? But what's really cool about this passage is that Paul's reference, while all of that's in the background, his reference in verse 15 is specifically about the mutuality of the gift. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. See, God didn't tell everybody to go collect their own manna. You go collect your daily bread. You get up, you collect your daily bread, and what you collect is yours. And, and No, he said, we're going to create a central pot. Everyone's going to collect, and everyone's going to put it in. Well, how much do I collect? As much as you can. Well, how much do I take? As much as you need. See, God designed it so that the giving of the daily bread would itself deepen the economy of mutuality of interdependence, shared experience, and shared love. They depended on each other. They got what they needed and gave what they had. And as a result, they were richer for it. Right? We're, we're back here going, no, nah, they'd be richer if they had more manna. No! They're richer if they have more love because true wealth is love, not stuff. And when you're rich in love, man, the stuff comes with it. Everyone put in. Everyone collected. Not about comparison. Not about personal enrichment. Not about me being secure and, and feeling better or better or important. Or, it's about mutuality. I love, therefore I give. And it's in the sharing of love that I'm enriched. Because love doesn't make you rich unless you give it away. It doesn't matter how much love you have, you don't give it away, you are in absolute poverty, right? Generosity is what increases the economy of wealth. You you following me? If true wealth is love, generosity is what drives the economy. It's what builds it up. And isn't that so beautiful? It's the exact opposite of greed because what drives an economy of greed is consuming, Getting and keeping and getting and keeping. What drives the economy of the kingdom is giving, loving, generosity. It's exactly what we would expect from the upside-down kingdom, from a Savior who won by dying and delivers us into new life by inviting us into that death. So what's generosity? Love. True wealth is love. Generosity is the giving of that love. The mutuality of that love. 
The richest people I know are not controlled by their money. Some of them don't have very much money. Some of them have a whole lot. The richest people I know are not controlled by their money. They're freed by their love. They don't live in a ghetto of their own affluence. Trapped by their own need to consume and to keep. They don't find pleasure in how much they can keep or find significance in in how much they have. They find pleasure in how much love they get to share. So, generosity. It's a critical way we grow true wealth. And that ties into one of the principles we've talked about, right? What we do with our money shows us our hearts. And what we do with our money shapes our hearts. We can look at our checkbooks and we can find out, am I greedy or am I generous? Do I have more keeping goals than I have giving goals, right? It's pretty easy to take a look at. But to realize as well that we're not passive in the process. What we do with our money shapes our hearts. We can actually start shaping our heart to increase our experience of grace. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. So let's push in against the fear and the greed and the pride that would seek to enslave you. Let's push into the freedom of grace, the love, the gratitude, the generosity that frees us. All right, uh, application. Hmm. I have a really handy application for this sermon. I don't know if you've noticed. Um, It's not, not real hard for me to reach for it. We have a capital campaign. And so I want to close with an appeal for the capital campaign and contextualize it into a broader appeal for generosity. Um, Our capital campaign. We are seeking to raise $1.1 million over the course of three years. That's a pretty significant goal. Our first capital campaign, we wanted to raise $550,000 in three years. We ended up raising just shy of $700,000 because we had a tremendous response of generosity to the invitation of grace. And it was awesome because it equipped us to get into this building. We bought this building... But this building needed tremendous renovation. So Converge, our our denominational partner, saw that we had an opportunity and recognized that we were a good investment for ministry. And so they gave us the money to rehab this building, to to renovate it. And it it was from from the roof to the basement. There was not one square foot of this building that wasn't renovated. Everything had to be redone to, to, to make it a, 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 a good space for us to use. And it cost us about $915,000 to do the renovation. Um, and, and Converge loaned us that money, right? And so what we want to do now is we want to pay that money back. That's the primary goal of this capital campaign is to pay back that money. Why is it so important to pay back that money? Right? I, I've had some people tell me, man, this sounds a little bit more like a, a capital com- campaign of convenience, Because if we don't pay it back, what happens? Well, you just still have debt. Uh, Nothing catastrophic happens. We're not going to lose the building. Things aren't going to fall down. That's true. That's true. But that doesn't mean it's not urgent. Because there's a couple good reasons. First, God, by his grace, equipped us to get into this building with that gift. And the last thing God ever wants us to do with grace is coast. To take advantage of it. To receive it and not grow in it. and, and, And give that grace back to others. Grace is empowered in transition. When we receive grace and give it, we have the ability to pay back this loan, and we should do it. It honors God, and it honors our partnership. 
But the second thing is this, it equips Converge then to move out in generosity to other young churches like ours. There are other young churches, like, like our daughter church in Collinsville Heights. They're, they're at a stage where we were six years ago. They're looking to buy a building and it's going to need rehab. When we pay back this money, it equips Converge to then invest in another young church so that they can become rooted in, in their community and growing in, in gospel ministry to their community. Right? So it's an investment. Not only does it say thank you to God and honor God for his investment of grace in us, it, it equips Converge to continue to be a good partner to other young churches and it invests in them. Right? Um, and there was another third great reason that I just forgot. Um, but there are two other goals um, with our, our capital campaign. Because we're raising more than, I think we currently owe 912000 Oh, it frees up our future. That's it. That's it. If we pay back this loan according to its natural course, we'll spend almost $2 million in interest. Okay? So, so that actually frees up $2 million for local ministry. Right? That's huge. It also frees us up so that we have more flexibility as God calls us to continue to be on mission in the future. If we don't have that debt, man, it just gives us tremendous freedom and flexibility to continue to respond to whatever opportunities God gives us. Okay? So why are we raising more than 915000 um, because we're, we're also putting together a nest egg for our next church plant. Um, we're looking at two specific areas, and we don't know exactly how God's going to lead us to invest this money, uh, but we've been praying very, very diligently about Alton, um, and, and, and I just believe God's going to open up an, an effectual door of ministry in that community. I'm longing to, to see that happen. Uh, we're also planning to send out a church planting team led by our worship leader, Brian, uh, in about two years. Um, and that, that's kind of open-handed because that's our plan, but you know God's always in charge of your plans. Uh, but we're putting together a nest egg so that we're ready to invest as the opportunities um, come open to us, right? And thirdly, we're going to give away 10% because we do that with all the money we collect. We give away 10% of what we collect in order to be a blessing. We just believe that's a biblical principle and, and we want to honor God in that way. So how are we going to get to $1.1 million? How are we going to get to $1.1 million? We're going to do it together. <laughs> There's no other way to get there, right? Um, I am not buying lotto tickets and scratching with the hope that, oh, hey, this is our plan. Will you guys just pray that God gives me the right numbers? That's not our plan, okay? Our plan is to get there together because it is in shared sacrifice that we grow in the shared experience of grace, right? It is in growing in generosity that we grow in the true wealth of love. And so um, this roadmap is, is just a, a suggestion, but, but it's a realistic roadmap that would actually get us there, right? So based on 125 people who would give to the campaign, which is realistic for our church size, here's a, a roadmap that would get us there, right? We're talking about 10 people giving $500 over the course of three years. We're talking about 20 people giving $10,000 over the course of three years. We're talking about one person giving $110,000 over the course of three years. This roadmap gets us there. Now, those are really big numbers that are based on a three-year commitment. So here's another roadmap. And by the way, these are in your capital campaign booklet. These, these are, this is part of what we equip you so that you can, you can figure that out. But, but here's a monthly breakdown, right? So if you're going to pledge $500 a year, you're looking at $14 a month. So we're talking about Netflix, okay? Family plan, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. And so... Um, yeah, if you were to, to sacrifice Netflix, it would equip you to pledge $500 over the course of three years. If you're, if you're going to pledge $10,000, you're pledging $278 a month. And some of you are like, man, how in the world? Where would I find $278 
a month in my budget. Well, here's the thing. You guys know how this works, right? As your income increases, what happens to your expenses? They increase with it. And part of that is good because when you're down here, there are things you desperately need you just can't afford, right? So you figure out how to go without them and you just pray nothing happens, right? And so as your income, your expenses need to go up. But here's, let's just be realistic. As we spend more on what we need, we also spend more on what we want. That's just reality. And so what we're asking is, is three critical questions. Over the course of three years, what can you eliminate from your budget to free up money to give? Because you probably don't have a lot sitting around. What, what can you reduce? Right? So maybe you've got three movie, three movie. You've got Amazon, Hulu, and, and, and Netflix. Pick one. Right? right? Just pick one. Uh, yeah, you'll miss some shows, but you'll be all right. What can you postpone? What, what, what expenditure are you looking at? You're like, man, that'll hurt, but we can wait three years. What can you postpone, right? So in the case of $10,000, let's say every morning you, uh, you, you grab a, a, a barista-made coffee on the way to work for five bucks, and every day you spend about 10 bucks for lunch, five days a week. Brew your own coffee, pack your lunch, and over the course of three years, you'll save just shy of $12,000. That easily equips you to make a $10,000 pledge, $278 a month, okay? By eliminating or reducing or postponing. So this is how we're going to get there. The question is, is, is um, of course, how, we, how, how we're all going to do it together. Um, I want to give you two stories here at the end. Um, and I share these with you by way of encouragement. I appreciate um, your patience with this. Last month, we had our advanced commitment dinner. We announced that. We invited everybody in the church to the advanced commitment dinner. And the advanced commitment dinner was exactly what it was, a, an advanced commitment dinner. We had a dinner, and we basically laid out the plan of the, of the capital campaign. And we said, we invite you to lead. Since you're at this dinner, you obviously are expressing a desire to lead. What do leaders do? Leaders lead. And in this case, they lead by giving, right? Um, they go out ahead and invite others to follow. That's what leaders do. Leaders lead by sacrifice, right? They, they make a sacrifice and invite others to follow them in that sacrifice so that together we can experience a preferred future together. That's what leadership is, right? So we, we invited people to this advanced commitment dinner and said, hey, will you be leaders in our church? Um, and we've been following it up with, with a number of conversations since then, just having, sitting down, having conversations with people about this and, and, and securing um, donations as people are saying, yeah, I want to lead, right? I want to tell you two stories. First, there was a young couple um, who were on the younger end of the spectrum, um, young family. They have, they're living in a, in a good place, but they've been dreaming of, of a house with a little more room as their family grows. And they're kind of at the beginning edge of their earning power and income. You guys remember that stage? Those of you who are a little bit farther, some of you are looking forward to that stage. You're like, I'm not even there yet. Um, but, but they're looking at it. And they're like, how in the world do we give? And so they, they prayed about it. They, they talked about it and they worked through this. What can we eliminate? What can we reduce? What can we postpone? And as they prayed about it, they came to the conclusion that they would postpone buying their house for three years. Like that thing that was lighting them up and it was, it was the, they, they, were, they were ready, right? And they're like, we can wait so that we can free up that money to give it to the capital campaign. When I heard that story, 
I felt gratitude. What's gratitude? I was humbled by the gift, and I took joy in the giver. I was like, that encourages me. That strengthens my faith. You guys, you're taking a step that's leading me, right? I also had somebody on the other end of the spectrum. Somebody who's in there, kind of in the height of their, of their earning. It's not that they can't earn more, but, but, you know, they're reaping the benefits of a lot of hard work and a lot of years of investment. And they're in that phase where, where they're in the strength of the earning power. And this person came to our uh, leadership dinner and, and heard my appeal uh, to, to sacrificial giving, right? We talked a little bit about a fair, not equal. Um, I didn't use that exact language, but we talked about how um, God calls us to sacrifice equally. And, and, and so this person prayed. And, um, and in praying and in wrestling, um, and I want you to catch this. This is somebody who is by nature very generous. This is somebody who already has a practice of generosity, somebody who already gives quite a bit. They were really wrestling. What does it look like for me to be generous? And so this person came back to me and, and um, <laughs> slid the little, this little commitment card kind of across the table. And, uh, and it was our lead gift, plus some. It was actually a commitment of $120,000 over the course of three years. $40,000 a year. And I was like, floored. I'm like, okay, how did you get there? And this person was like, I asked what would hurt. This hurts. <laughs> I was like, all right. I feel loved, <laughs> you know? Now, which, which person loved more? And you're like, that's the silliest question ever asked. Because when it comes to mutuality, it's not about comparison. They both loved. They both grew rich in grace. They both submitted themselves to God and they both moved forward in profound generosity and obedience to God. And they both humbled my heart and filled me with joy and left me wondering, can I do better with my giving goals? Can I dig in deeper? Because the more I give the more blessing I experience. And Jesus wasn't lying when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He wasn't saying on a philosophical, theoretical level. He meant on a personal level. Those who invest in the generosity, those who invest in the economy of love and see true wealth as love, reap benefits, dividends. But here's the beautiful thing. It's not just for them. In the mutuality of the gift, it is for everyone involved. I am enriched by your generosity, and you are enriched by mine. So here's my appeal to you as we wrap up. Take a look at the book and pray about it. Just ask God, where do you fit on that path? Right? Just ask him, what does obedience look like for me? What does generosity look like for me?
right? And if you're not ready to go there yet, you find you're still getting all tight in your heart and you're not ready to move toward generosity, get ready, right? Take the step to get ready for the first step. Recognize, okay, there's, there's some work to be done before I can even honestly ask God that question. Dig in and, and, and renew your experience of grace so that you are freed into love. All right, s- wrapping up. I think an important point. And I, and I say this as a spiritual father with all honesty and integrity. You don't have to give to our capital campaign. But you have to give. You don't have to give your money to us. But you have to grow more generous if you want to grow in a greater and deeper experience of grace. So if you don't trust me or you don't trust this church, man, I praise God you're even here. But give wherever God leads you. Because as you give, you are enriched. And as you are enriched, we are all enriched. Give. It is good. All right, let me close with some more prayer. And uh, we'll move into a time of reflection. We'll share communion in a moment. But let me pray for us first. Father, I thank you that you are the giver of the greatest gift, that you gave us your son, that you held nothing back. You, you were not one who thought, how do I keep what I have and get more? You were one who thought, how do I give all that I have so that we could be blessed? Lord, in the giving of your son, you bore all the cost and we received all the benefit. And in the beautiful mutuality of love, as we were enriched by the death of Christ, you took joy in our renewed sanity of humility and responding faith. It was for our good and it was for your glory. Spirit, will you give us the clarity of mind to recognize how foolish it is to try to keep the manna? How foolish it is to try to to hoard the things that, that you gave instead of running to you, the one who gave them. To grow in our faith, to grow in our joy, to grow in our dependence, and to grow in our generosity. Lord, would you do this work? We pray in Jesus' name. You guys take a few minutes and, and uh, just respond to God. We'll share communion in a moment.